Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about animal companionship. Actually, I don't expect this one to be that inappropriate at all, although for some it might be unusual, because I intend to talk about the role that animals play within family life. First, though, you can listen to inappropriate conversations on Stitcher. Stitcher.com is a smart way to listen to podcasts when you're on the go, and if you listen to inappropriate conversations there, even though there's only a few shows from the backlog, most of them can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org. In fact, all previous shows. One of the things you'll find is that Inappropriate Conversations doesn't just deal with religion, Christianity in particular, politics and how those two things intersect, but there's also an element of popular culture, what I typically have described as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll angle, but also nostalgia, and this one will be a nostalgia show. I intend to talk a little bit about a topic that I introduced in Inappropriate Conversations 110. I spoke a little bit about the dogs that I've had during my adult life, because it really tied into the topic and helped me explain what I felt about end-of-life decisions, because I've had three dogs during my lifetime, two cats during my adult lifetime, and obviously this means that along the way, those animals have aged and died. I still have a dog and a cat, but I want to talk really about the first one. And part of the reason that I refer back to Inappropriate Conversations 110, whose life it is, is that I didn't want to repeat anything that I'd already shared there in the background material, really right at the beginning of that show. I talked about my wife and I and the decision that we made to get a dog and a cat early on in our marriage because we were going to delay having children. But I will talk in this show about some of the things behind that decision and how it played out. Because really, one of the driving thoughts in my head, anyway, was that my wife was much more prepared to have kids than I was. And that I had not really, uh, from the perspective of another human being or another living being, held much personal responsibility for the life of another creature. I did have cats as a kid. We, as a family, were more of a cat family than a dog family. But even that was a collective family sort of ownership. In college, my wife had a couple of newts with her roommate. I had a couple of newts with my roommate. But that's a, a much lower standard. First off, the average lifespan is probably much lower anyway. And it isn't quite the same thing. There isn't quite the same level of interpersonal interaction. I've shared a Facebook post from a website that basically it's a website that sells pet food. But I... One of the posts they put up I thought was worth putting on the Inappropriate Conversations page. And it was essentially a statement that says, hey, if, if you don't consider the dog part of your family, then don't get a dog. We didn't make that mistake. We absolutely considered both the dog and the cat to be part of the family and wanted to learn some things from that experience. So I'm going to jump forward, not repeat much of anything that I covered in, in that other show, and talk about the day that we finally brought kids home. But to do so, I'll just restate a couple of quick things. First, that because I hadn't historically been a dog owner, I naturally expected that if we brought both a kitten and a puppy home at the same time, that the kitten would be more or less my pet, more attached to me than my wife, and the dog to my wife, 
it just played out exactly the opposite of that. Not that I didn't have a great relationship with the cat. Uh, the cat, actually, that cat was as friendly as any cat that I've ever owned. He would let me uh, put him on my shoulder and carry him around the house. Uh, we would, in fact, we would walk around with this, you know, pet perched on my shoulder like a parrot, happening to be a cat instead of a parrot. But we'd look down at the dog every now and then and, you know, talk like a pirate. Yarr, swab the deck, because I felt sort of like a pirate with a cat, you know, perched perched up there the way he was. So no, we we had a good relationship. But there are things that you learn early on in dealing with parental frustration and perhaps parental disappointment in having these animals. There's no other way to word it. Uh, People who describe pet ownership as all hearts and flowers are not doing a service to future pet owners. There are moments that are extremely frustrating or even disillusioning. The one that jumps to my mind was I was the one who was overnight sort of in charge of the animals. My wife, during the first year that we were married, would go to work much earlier than I would. I was essentially a second shift employee going to work in the afternoon. And she was not just a first shift employee, but before the dawn, kind of going into the going into the hospital to work. And so I, my job was to be the first one up to get the pets taken care of. Uh, I didn't want my wife out walking the dog at 4.30 in the morning, especially in the neighborhood that we lived in at the time. So... For me, the first thing in the morning was very important, and I've had moments where the puppy would greet me first thing in the morning with something she'd fished out of the cat litter box, dropping it either on the bed or, worse, on my chest. It's frustrating trying to orient the dog into what's a good gift and what's a bad gift, right? So those sort of experiences with animals, and it's not unusual for a new puppy or even a new cat to go through some early experiences, uh, getting getting their shots up to date, Uh, Dealing with worms if that happens. Obviously, if the dog is fishing things out of the cat litter box, it's predictable that you're going to have an issue there. The one story I remember, though, the most was waking up one morning and finding out that the dog was not in, in the bedroom. She was already roaming around the apartment. This meant that when my wife left for work, she left the apartment door open. That wasn't unusual because I was supposed to get up as soon as the dog woke me. But I'm a deep sleeper. So the dog apparently woke up, didn't wake me up, and it turned out that what happened was the dog had been awakened by sounds in the kitchen. We had bought some Girl Scout cookies, and before even bothering to open the first package, my wife had put them up into a cabinet. And essentially, the cookies in question, I think, were the uh, shortbread cookies, more or less. And what had happened during the early morning hours, perhaps after my wife had gone to work, but before I'd woken up, was that the cat had opened up the cabinet, pulled down one of the boxes of shortbread cookies, clawed and chewed open the box, and clawed his way into the cellophane to actually get to the cookies themselves. And the dog, hearing this commotion, had gone into the kitchen to figure out what was going on. At some point, the dog noticed that the cat was actually sitting on the counter, having achieved his mission, eating Girl Scout cookies. And the dog had begun to make enough noise, begging, whining, asking the cat, or literally asking the cat for a cookie, that that is what woke me up. So as I walked down the hall, trying to find out where the dog had gone and to see what I needed to do to get myself and the dog outside for the first morning walk, the image that will stay emblazoned in my mind perhaps forever was the cat holding a cookie off the side of the counter with his teeth to drop one of those Girl Scout cookies down to the dog as a bribe. Literally a bribe to shut her up so that she wouldn't make enough noise, awaken me, 
and, you know, spoil the day for the cat. The cat had worked long and hard to pull a box out of a cabinet, claw through it, chew through it, and, and get the Girl Scout cookie that he wanted. The dog, seeing me, quickly grabbed the cookie in midair and took off so I wouldn't take the cookie away from her. And ultimately what ended up happening is I ended up taking the cookies away from the cat. But this is the kind of relationship those two had. Bringing them into our home the way we did led them to have a sort of a bond, that they, they were a team. And nowhere did that appear quite as literally as it did there. I remember one afternoon, I had just received a box set of the Wagner opera Parsifal. I'm not exactly sure what interested me so much in this particular opera. It's not that I spent a lot of time listening to opera, but I did get the uh, multiple LP set back then. It wasn't CD. And I'd put on the first side to listen to while I was doing some things around the house. And the animals didn't have any problem with most of the music I listened to. If I was listening to alternative rock or heavy metal or or R&B rap, they were good with it. And with classical music, no issue as well. But after the overture was done... And Parsifal hit the point where you essentially have singing in German. The animals flat out rebelled, full on rebelled against anything that they were hearing. The dog howling, the cat doing that screechy sort of cat and pain sound until I didn't just turn the album lower. I had to take the album off to stop the commotion. And the lesson learned for me there was the cat doesn't like German opera. This is an interesting tale to tell, though, because of the two animals, although the the dog was pretty much my companion, we came to the point of calling the the cat the doctor. There were two reasons why we did this. The first reason we called him the doctor, and this is probably not unusual. Cat owners are probably familiar with what I'm going to say. Whenever anybody would get sick, even something as simple as as a fairly bad cold, the cat, who might be totally disinterested in that family member, suddenly shows up and takes an interest. Nursing people back to health, I think, is perhaps the perception of the animal. And it was not unusual for the doctor to show up even before you knew you were really coming down with something. You're in that mode of thinking maybe you're fighting off a cold, but you're not sure. There's some congestion. Is that a scratchy throat? It's hard to say. Well, if the cat's in your lap, you can bet the cat's already figured out that you've got a cold and that you're going to need some doctoring. And one of the uh, doctorings that the cat did for me was I had a surgery on my lower back that you know, wasn't really serious, but was going to require me to spend about you know, a day and a half laying on my stomach um, at all times. So I wasn't able to sit up, and I wasn't really supposed to be either on my side or, or on my back either. I needed to be on my stomach so that my back could just be facing upward and um, stitches could have you know the right amount of exposure to air. Well, that first night I had bandages on. And I was laying on the couch, and the thought was, well, I'll just stay on the couch tonight, because if I'm sleeping in my own bed, I'll get into my own bedtime habits. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that if I was sleeping on my bed, I would end up rolling around and, and ending up at least on my side at some point during the night. But on the couch, it's a little bit easier, because the couch doesn't leave, give you that range of motion. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be stuck here all night... Uh, I'll make sure I have you know, something to drink because I'm not supposed to get up and walk around. I'm not supposed to get up and go to the kitchen. And I'll have both a movie in the Laserdisc player, a movie in the VHS player, and a TV channel that I know will show something I'd want to watch all night long. It turns out that on this particular day, the Turner Classic Movies channel was going to be showing, the next morning they were going to be showing a Fred Astaire marathon. Now, I'm not necessarily a big song and dance fan, but I will watch Fred Astaire 
anytime I get a chance. So I thought, wait, once I get to the point of being awake the next morning, I can stay on the couch, just flip on the TV, and at least until, like, the sports games start later that afternoon, I've got, like, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers to get me through the morning. But to get me through the evening, we had borrowed a couple of movies, and the movie that I had put inside the VHS player was actually a film version of Wagner's Parsifal. I didn't think anything of it. To me, my family was not going to be big fans of opera, but they were going to be upstairs in their own beds, my wife included. And I didn't really think twice about the animals either. I figured they would follow their same routine. But the doctor being the doctor, the cat, chose to sit on the uh, middle part of my back. So I've got this bandage on the low part of my back, and I've got this cat who's sitting just a few inches away from the bandage, purring, and almost being like sort of a an organic heat, you know, uh, the equivalent of a water bottle, I suppose, uh, a vibrating heat source, which was very comfortable, and relieving some of the discomfort of sleeping on the, your stomach when you'd rather be on your back. So it was very nice. And he was totally comfortable as we were watching some other movies along the way. Um, the sequel to The Fugitive was on TV, U.S. Marshals. We were watching that as a family. When that was over, everyone else went upstairs. I flipped on the VHS, put on the movie Parsifal, and once again, during the opening credits and during the orchestral overture, there were no issues. The second the first character sang, the cat meowed angrily, got up, and went upstairs. And I was on my own for the rest of the night. So, the doctor, although inclined to try to provide his version of feline medical care, was unwilling to work with German singing going on in the room at the same time. Again, I have no explanation for that. The other reason that we would call him the doctor was that we noticed, just through a peculiar coincidence, that in that particular apartment we lived in, the toilet was right next to where we took left the trash basket, and the shower was sort of perpendicularly across from it. So when you got done in the shower and you were drying off your hair and maybe even still standing sort of in the tub part of that shower, if you used a Q-tip or something to dry the outer part of your outer ear, you could throw it to the trash can from even four feet away, three feet away, even standing in the tub. You could you could make a pretty, it's an easy basket. I mean, a Q-tip is not a big you know, thing and the bathroom's trash basket was wide enough. But the cat would get on top of the toilet seat and swat away any attempts to score a basket. He literally became, in that way, sort of Dr. Dunk, like an ABA basketball star from back in the day. In this case, more of a, more of a Wilt Chamberlain style of defense, swatting you know, attempts, goaltending, literally, along the way. And so he, that, instead of being just Dr., or his name was Duncan, he became Dr. Dunk for us. And he actually got good enough at it that at some points he would actually, he taught himself how to catch the Q-tip in midair and slam it home himself. So the animals, really a great relationship interacting with just my wife and me. But an interesting thing happened the day we brought our first child home. And you know, I, I don't know if this is exactly the best way of handling it, but there's a video record of it, so I might as well tell it like it appears on the video. My wife wanted camcorder footage of as much of the experience as humanly possible. Now, I didn't run the camera while I was driving the car to drive her and the baby back from the hospital. But as soon as we got out of the car to go into the apartment, she was taking care of the baby getting through that apartment door. And I was running film footage of the whole thing. 
And so we've got this footage of the dog being so excited and so eager to see not just my wife, but also the baby, that it was hard for my wife to get through the door into the apartment because the dog was standing on its on its tippy toes, for want of a better word, and sniffing and trying to get a look at the baby and trying to figure out what was going on. And you know, I, I'm sure the dog had a perception that something was happening and that my wife had clearly gone through the entire stages of pregnancy with the dog in the house. So the dog is you know, jumping up on uh, on couch cushions and chairs, trying to get a good look at the baby. I'm filming this because this is my wife, our new child, and the dog all together. And it dawns on me, I have no idea where the cat is. So without cutting, continuing to film, I just panned over to the front part of the house. And there the cat was, sitting on his little cat condo, kind of right next to the television, looking at us with an expression on his face that can only be described as, what in the world have you two done? Don't you realize this changes everything? Not at all. A happy cat. It took much longer for the cat to warm up to the presence of children in the house than it did for the dog. Now, I've got a theory for why the dog warmed up to kids so fast, but the point that I want to make, and I'll maybe come back to it if I stop to tell the dog's story a little more, is that having the dog in the house both provided an education for me for more than two or three years of how to handle the growth and development and to deal with the frustration and disappointment of handling the growth and development of a much less mature mind. How can you bring somebody along to be part of the family, teach them as you go, and not get frustrated or disheartened by the ups and downs of that process. And it had come to the point that now this dog assumed a very maternal role in the home. She was a safety dog. She didn't like raised voices. She certainly didn't like anybody using what she might consider to be or construe to be an angry voice around the baby. If you used a strange sort of Halloween voice and directed it toward either one of the kids in our home, the dog would get in your face. She would bark at you. She would let you know that that wasn't appropriate. She was a no-rough-housing puppy dog. And, of course, by now, a much more mature animal. Because what had happened in the years between when we finally had our first children and when we brought this puppy and kitten to our house was at some point we did decide that we were going to let our dog go through the experience of childbirth. We bought a male cat and a female dog. And so the female dog, we got her pregnant, and in the process of moving from one city to another, it just so happened that we were in the uncomfortable situation of the dog being due to deliver puppies at any time. When my wife was finishing up work in one city, and I was starting work in the new city. And I was very worried about what would happen if we weren't both in the home, both in our new home, and one of us was going to have to deliver puppies without the other adult around. Part of my concern was that, again, this was an area where I didn't feel like I had any expertise. We had talked to the veterinarian, and the vet had said, hey, you know, you got a Cocker Spaniel there, and yes, you're going to be looking at something like four puppies. Six would be probably the high end. And so I asked for tips. I said, hey, let's say this whole you know, dog giving birth to puppies things happens when I'm alone in the, in the apartment and my wife is still you know, three hours plus away. And what the veterinarian said was, well, hey, first, don't worry about it. This is something that's fairly natural. Most mother dogs are good at this. And he kind of walked me through, well, what, what are the ins and outs? What should I watch for? And the only real warning I got was that, A, dogs will eat their afterbirth. 
and that that's okay. That especially if they're intent about it, it may be something that they're doing to seek nutrition, to give them some sustenance, to go carry on with the process of delivering puppy after puppy after puppy. But the warning was, don't don't let them overindulge because if the dog gets too full of a stomach, the process of labor could make the dog nauseous. And if the dog starts throwing up, then now you've got risk to the mother and all the puppies. So the only real thing I was watching for when this all came down exactly the way you think it would, me alone in the house with the doctor, who in this case was no help, being a cat, and a cocker spaniel about to give birth, not to the four puppies that were recommended, that I was told might happen, not to the six that was the high end, but as it turned out, to nine. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. You only find that out as puppies keep popping out of your dog. But the first, this is an all black Cocker Spaniel as well. A little bit of white uh, tuft on her on her chest, but essentially all black. And we knew that somewhere in her background, there might have been some brown, because we saw the other dogs in, in the litter she came from. She was the runt of her litter as well, so not the biggest Cocker Spaniel ever. But the dogs were coming out black. So the first puppy comes out, it's 100% black. And my dog cleans off the afterbirth and, and, and eats it and so forth and so on. I was also told that there could be, don't be alarmed if there's a few minutes, maybe even five minutes between dogs. Because when a dog delivers a litter, it's, it's not exactly like someone delivering fraternal twins, but there is the process of multiple delivery. So you've got that lag time. But as soon as the first black dog had come out, what looked to me as a very big mass of afterbirth. The coloration was not black like the dogs. It was uh, had brownish you know, look to it. And my dog was intent on eating the rest of that afterbirth. And I thought, well, hang on a second. We're just getting started here. You've had this little bit from the first puppy. The first puppy's fine. It's breathing. And now you're going after this big chunk here. I kept steering her away. She kept being really insistent. I don't know what would have happened if I'd drawn the line and stopped her cold. She might have gotten very, very confrontational, which is not in her nature at all. But eventually, I just kind of gave up and stopped trying to fight her and just let her say, okay, well, I'm going to deal with the consequences, but you do what you want to do. It was an all-brown puppy that she had delivered two dogs very quickly in very quick succession. And it wasn't a dog kind of delivered with afterbirth and then an more afterbirth after it, and then later another dog. It was two dogs back to back. After that, the pattern seemed fairly normal, but all the other dogs were primarily black. If you looked at them, you'd say, well, these are, these are black cocker spaniels with, with either white or brown tinges to them. Some of them were all black with brown eyebrows, or were all black with white fur on their paws, looking like they were wearing little, little socks around. But this one and one only was purely 100% tan. And that, of course, became a very special dog to all of us. I think including to my dog. Because on some level, that dog's well-being was being endangered by my misunderstanding of what was going on in this process of dog birth and what it all meant and what to do about it. So here I am, sitting in the basement uh, with the phone, ready to call my wife or the veterinarian the second I've got trouble. And the cat watching us again like we're all crazy, and the dog giving birth to all of those puppies. And I think that that process of her you know, going through the, the entire child, what we could call the childbirth experience, made her an even more heightenedly sensitive dog to just the whole relationship between parents and children. That's a theory. It's my theory. I could be wrong. But 
the way my dog behaved with our kids did even more to solidify the bond within our family that the anyone who could tell me or would be willing to tell me that pets are pets and children are children. Well, I'm not confusing pets with children. I'm really, truly not. But it's much more complicated than that clean division would make it sound. Because when my wife and I first got married, the first sort of children we had in our home were these two animals. And those two animals didn't do anything to misbehave either as older siblings or as other littermates. They didn't misunderstand their role. They were properly helpful in the pet-to-child relationship. And I think that my kids will always have an appreciation for animals because they grew up with animals who truly, deeply loved them. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. Podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at pollyannacowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. In another episode, I've talked about the end of life of that first dog, my dog, and again, a, lo- a long life, well over 10 years, and circumstances that were beyond anyone's control, sort of a, just a, a medical ailment sort of situation. The cat is a more interesting story, and one that I've never told. Cats, in my experience when I was growing up, often, when they reach the end of life, do not want to be found. We've had more than one cat who as we could tell that they were aging, simply went on a walk and never came back. And not long after this dog died, this cat that had been part of our family for the exact duration, they were brought into the home on the same day, went on the walk. And it wasn't that, in my opinion, he was unwell and near the end of his life, but he was an old cat. He was 12, 12-ish years old. And I think he was very depressed at being without his longtime companion and became much more interested in playing and exploring outside. So when he didn't come back one day, for two or three days, we weren't initially thinking that he would never return. But he didn't return. And he'd done this before. He'd been gone for, you know, instead of one or one day or an overnighter, he'd been gone for three or four days and come back. And we were always very concerned because we didn't know where he was. But in this case, he went on the walk and he never came back. And my assumption was, based on all of our searches, he was nowhere on the property. He was nowhere that we had seen. No one had reported um, seeing him anywhere. There were no uh, animals in the street. There was no body. But the assumption was, after you know a couple of months go by, that we need to do a family memorial service of some sort. Because the cat was certainly old enough to have gone on that final walkabout. And it seemed consistent with his demeanor, with his... His attitude, he seemed to have aged a lot more since the dog died than he had even before that. So, flash forward about six months, and we're moving from one home to another, trying to get a little bit closer to my work, and now that the kids are closer to being in that junior high school and high school age, we knew we needed to be in a different home configuration. It wasn't that we needed a lot more room. It's just that the house that we initially moved to when we came to this part of the country was not configured exactly the way we needed it to be. 
So we had found a home and we had sold or were in the process of selling ours when we were, you know, doing that sort of last minute stuff. I mean, you're mowing the yard and uh, in a very aggressive way. You're trying to maintain your home in a somewhat um, predictable, consistent manner because you never know when someone's going to be coming to look at your home to buy it. And so we had the, the for sale sign out front. And one of my neighbors, I knew him, uh, he and I had both been part of the Cub Scout program, our sons were of similar ages, but we weren't you know, that close, we didn't uh, have any other connection, we weren't neighbors in the sense of being uh, homes in close proximity, he was two or three blocks away, but in the neighborhood, and he was walking you know, around with his kids who were riding a bike, and um, maybe walking the dog for all I can recall, and he stopped by the for sale sign, asked how the home sale was going. You do that. When anybody in your neighborhood is selling a home, how well that goes is interesting. Even if you have no intention of selling your home yourself, there's something about how well the home sale goes that tells you something about you know, where you stand. You know, where's, what's the market like in your neighborhood? And I said, yeah, things are going pretty well. We're really ready to move. It's just a question of, of getting the final deal done on this particular house that we were in. But the one thing that I was disappointed by was that I think that there were at least three fairly big boxes that we had moved from Kansas all the way to Ohio that we were still going to be unpacking from Kansas. In other words, at no point in moving into the first house we moved to in Ohio did we get a chance to unpack those boxes. And a lot of that was that, again, there wasn't the right kind of storage space for us to unload everything and so for more than just a few years, we essentially left those boxes in the garage, fully packed as they'd been when those boxes were put on a truck to leave the state of Kansas. Mike looked at me and he said, Kansas? Well, that's interesting. Did you guys have a cat when you lived there? I said yes, and listened to him as he described my cat to me. Apparently, the cat, when he went on that long walk, had encountered some sort of conflict with a wild animal. I'm assuming a raccoon, but it could have been something else. A groundhog, a squirrel. And in the process of that, the cat came out on the bad end of it and lost all parts of his collar. The only thing left on his collar was um, enough thread to hold the collar together. And the ID that was his not his current rabies vaccination information from Ohio or the tag that had his name and phone number on it, the, the oldest one, we would just add them in. So he had one from Kansas, one from Ohio, and one with his name on it. The only one that survived was the one from Kansas. So not knowing what else to do, they rescued the cat, took it to the vet, nursed it back to health, and named him Kansas. Because, well, it's the only name they had for him. We didn't catch or notice any signs that had been put up saying, you know, lost cat found or what have you. But he had gone to a really good home. So here we are, literally couple of days before we're making the move when we find out this information and it occurs to us that we have a decision to make because we believe that we are moving from one home to the other without the cat because the cat is gone we've had a, an in-home memorial service for the animal it, kind of remembering you know, what an awesome pet he had been and how he contributed to all of our lives and here we are finding out that he wasn't dead after all so we went over to mike's house the whole family, me, my wife, the kids, everybody, to first off, see with our own two eyes this, whether this really was our cat. And you know, there's just no mistaking it. You know, if you're a, an animal lover, 
who has an animal with that kind of you know decade plus long relationship, you're going to know lots just from looking at him, his eyes, from his purr. It was our cat. And now the decision had to be made. The cat has lived five or six months with this other family. His health is still not outstanding. It wasn't outstanding when he went on that walk and didn't come back. Not to mention whatever encounter he had with an animal that left him pretty beat up. And so we as a family had to decide, are, are we going to take our cat back? Well, a lot of that depended on what this other family wanted to do. But it was pretty clear right away that it was going to be a negative thing if we took the cat. That he had now found two families who loved him. Two families who, whether in a very long period of time or a very short period of time, had become attached to him. And the decision had to be made, well, what do you do? I mean, he was part of our family, but he had made that walk. He had not dealt well with the death of his friend, the dog. And now he had attached himself to another home. And we decided that what really had to be done was to, first off, provide some financial support to Mike's family because they'd spent money on veterinary bills and everything else. But to make sure that his children knew that we weren't going to take their cat away, that it was fine by us if the doctor had found a new home. It wasn't even six months later. It would probably been less than a year since he went on that walk that I got a call from Mike letting us know that Duncan had passed away, or Kansas had passed away. But these relationships are that, they're that real, to where it felt like in some ways that there was a, um, a connection between these two families forged by the fact that we'd both shared a relationship with a cat. This is what animal companionship brings. So this month, that probably the first week of the month of November, has historically been like an animal shelter week. This is a uh, an animal companionship month. Depending on how you look at these these events, these months of the year, these these would be holidays, so to speak, these recognition days. And it's probably a good time, it's an intentionally chosen time, to speak in terms of taking care of animals, that if you're going to if you're going to take an animal into your home, consider adopting a pet. At the very least, take incredibly seriously what it means to take care of an animal. Now most people will say, hey, of, of course, this is the common thing you hear to say, hey, be responsible, understand that you're not just bringing um, a creature into your home, but you're adding a family member, all that sort of stuff. But that kind of works both ways. Know that you're not just changing the life of an animal if you bring one into your home, especially in a rescue situation, but you're also changing, you're changing the dynamic inside your family because this isn't just another piece of furniture. This isn't a floral arrangement. This is a living creature that is going to interact, hopefully, in the same kind of ways that our first dog and our first cat interacted with us. Our different drummer today is artist and author Susan Medaw. Susan was born in Montclair, New Jersey, and after going to college, we worked in an advertising agency in New York City before moving then to Boston and now staying sort of in that eastern part of Massachusetts. She has written and illustrated books for children, including the Martha series, which is the one I want to speak to in particular. And her work 
with both her uh, her own personal illustration and her personal storytelling, inspired by the dogs that had become a part of her family's life, in some ways, almost by happenstance, as she goes. Let me read the first part of a book called Martha Walks the Dog. It's not my favorite of the Martha series of books that Mada has written and illustrated. It just happened to be the one that was the most handy. Martha's family had a wonderful party trick. They knew that when they said, Speak, girl, Martha would. And so the uh, artist has Martha speaking. I dreamed I was being chased by a giant head of lettuce. Whoa, those vegetarian nightmares are the worst. Speaking of food, here's a tongue twister. How much chow could a chow chow chew if a good chow could chew chow? The guests were always amazed. Martha learned to speak the day she ate alphabet soup. The letters went up to her brain instead of down to her stomach. Martha's family was so proud. Each story in the series tells a little bit about some of the things that might happen, mishaps, adventures, and so forth, if you actually had a talking dog. And not just a talking dog in the sense of the Budweiser commercial, I believe it was, where the dog was uh, given the power to speak, but all it did was ask for bacon all day long, 24 hours a day. No, in this case, Martha, the talking dog, comes out with a vocabulary, a sense of humor, and even a sense of purpose. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of PBS. It's not that I dislike children's broadcasting television. It's just that I haven't had a good reason to watch any of that in more than 15 years now. My kids are that much older. But if I were of that age, I'm quite sure that I'd be watching the Martha shows because we fell in love as a family with these Martha books. They both talk about the importance of having a great vocabulary. And they also, along the way, teach things about how we treat other people. This Martha Walks the Dog book tells a story of a so-called mean dog in the neighborhood and the mean dog's angry attitude and its its barking and its growling toward others had a lot to do with the fact that everyone always called it a mean dog it was living up to expectations and in the course of the story martha learns a lesson about what can happen if you see the good in even in people where finding the good in them is extremely difficult my favorite of the martha books though is the one called Martha Blah Blah, B-L-A-H, B-L-A-H. And in this one, the company that manufactures the particular brand of alphabet soup that Martha's family uses to put food into her bowl so that she can keep her letters and, and continue to remember how to speak, starts cutting corners, leaving letters of the alphabet out of their alphabet soup so that they no longer have a complete range available. And Martha, as a result, begins losing letters she needs to form words in this, you know, magical way, and eventually loses the ability to speak altogether. It's a story that, you know, tells a tale about, first off, how cool it would be to have a talking dog, but how difficult it would be if that dog lost the ability to speak, but also the social responsibility that companies have to their customers, that in some, in some ways, price isn't the only thing that matters, Product quality has as much of an important role to play in the customer relationship as price alone. Martha Blah Blah being the book that tells that story. I've seen interviews here recently preparing for this particular inappropriate conversation. I've been preparing for this for quite some time, in fact. I found a couple years back an episode of Books You Should Read dealing with children's books where I had sent a quick audio clip into Kennedy, who's hosting that show at the time, 
to talk about my favorite book when I was a kid, but also my kid's favorite book. And I mentioned Meta at the time. One story I don't think I told when I was making that recording for that book review show was Meta's story, her account of coming up with the idea to make a talking dog part of an elaborate book series, actually coming from her son, who at the age of seven, while eating his own alphabet soup, wondered aloud what would happen if they fed the soup to Martha. Would feeding her the alphabet soup give her the ability to talk? Ideas coming from kids. Speaking of a stray dog, only at that time, perhaps fairly recently, welcomed into the family home, and asking a question that triggered something that I hope for Meta has been a very lucrative part of her career, because I know that whether the, the writing of those books and the illustrating of those books has been richly rewarding to her, I certainly know that it's been richly rewarding to me and to my family. I am now older enough that sometimes I struggle to remember some of the things that happened before we had kids or when my kids were very young. But I'm now having employees and friends who are at that age of having their first kids. And it's been triggering these memories lately, seeing that that was happening and remembering that, hey, you know what? Um, Dr. Seuss is a good thing to have. When we were, again, first, first in that first year or two of marriage, and we didn't have any of Dr. Seuss books yet, one of those book club offer deals came in the mail for us of signing up for Dr. Seuss books and getting them for your new baby. Well, at the time, we weren't even pregnant. And we hadn't necessarily agreed on what baby names were going to be. And it didn't matter because we thought, well, hey, we're, we're going to be parents someday. Let's sign up for this deal. Let's begin accumulating a library of the Dr. Seuss books that we would want, we'd want to have already when our kids were old enough to be read to, which isn't very old at all. In fact, in some cases, in fact, in the case of our family, some of that reading, too, was in vitro. So we began to get those books. But the, this one offer, which is really a good offer for a you know, struggling economic young family would not let you get the books delivered to your home without providing the name of the child. If you didn't give them your kids' names, you couldn't have the books. So we looked at each other, my wife and I, and said, well, how about Duncan? I mean, the dog's name sounds like a dog, but Duncan, well, you know, that, it might be an unusual name for a boy, but it's certainly the name of our boy cat. So we signed up to receive these Dr. Seuss books under the child's name, Duncan. And the fascinating thing about it, I guess it's predictable, but it's still funny, is that a few years later, we began getting um, offers for diapers for Duncan and offers for Duncan's first bicycle. It only really stopped about probably 10 years in, for, but for almost a decade, we were constantly getting spam-based marketing information directed for things we were going to need now that our son, Duncan, had reached the next step of his development. That Again, the kind of role that you almost take for granted that having an animal in your home, having a pet in your home, can can have some of the books that our kids heard when they were first old enough to even recognize their parents' voices were books that we obtained because the cat essentially got the ball rolling and got those books for us, brought them into our home. We, of course, said goodbye to those two animals and have since said goodbye to another dog, but we still own a cat and a dog. I don't know what's going to happen as we enter this stage in our life where kids are grown and moved away from the house. We've thought you know, that maybe getting another dog would not be the best thing to do in terms of how often our work schedule will have us away from home. 
So we might be living in a home where we know we've got our last dog, or at least our, our last dog for a very long time. And with a cat, it's a little bit easier. You can go on a short weekend trip, make a long vacation weekend out of something, and still have a cat functioning okay. But the one cat by itself, you know, our experience is that, that animals do recognize each other, and they do get lonely. And when, when our first cat lost his companion, our first dog, it really took a toll on him. It really had an impact on him. So I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that the lessons that I have learned from having pets in the house, the practical and very helpful personal growth I did on my own, through nothing more than the presence of animal companionship, has made a big difference. I don't know that there's anything I can tie this back to when it comes to spirituality, but I will say this, that there's nothing in the Bible that rules out the idea that we will at some point encounter those we love in the afterlife who were not human. Anybody who conceives of a new heaven and new earth in the age to come that doesn't include plants and animals is misunderstanding the last two or three chapters of the Bible completely. I believe that there will be plants and animals in the afterlife, and I sincerely hope that it will include meeting again some of the animals that over the years I've grown to know and grown to love. Thanks for listening.